I'm gonna teach from a particular book. I might be the only one in my institution that's an expert in my particular field. And so I work independently to prepare my students for whatever they come to me having done and where I know they have to go afterwards. But I can work with my colleagues on that. I can work with colleagues at other institutions and I can be practicing a more open design to my course, even without necessarily going that next step of involving students yet. And I think we can get people there, but sometimes you have to take that first step before you can take additional steps. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. I paused because I'm scared that you have a joke. Do you have a joke or not, Brad? Are you saving it? All right. Well, yeah. Okay. Since you've asked, what do you call a jail cell for podcasters? Oh, no. Oh. Squarespace. <laughs> it's your fault. You asked. You asked. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Where to even just go? Like Katie and Eric know it goes downhill from here. <laughs> We're okay with that. We are here for part two on the Digital to Learn podcast with Katie Williams and Eric Worth. Welcome back to the show, Katie. Thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, and Eric. Thank you. We're looking forward to this. Last week, we talked a little bit about the publications that Katie and Eric have produced together, have written together, and we're going to continue that conversation today. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the episode last week, please go back to your favorite podcast provider and listen in. It'd be worth catching part one. You can also go to our website, digitaltolearn.com, for resources to accompany part one and part two of our podcast episodes for Katie Williams and Eric Worth. But for now, we're going to continue the conversation on the Digital to Learn podcast. So we know in higher education, there's a subtle or very specific pressure for faculty to produce new knowledge, be creating things, and to do those in a way that is critically reviewed by their peers. So if I were interested in creating open resources, however that's defined, that I want to share with the world at no cost, how would I go about gaining some level of credibility in relation to that resource? That's a good question. And I think it depends a little bit on what resources being put together. So we do have a lot of faculty around the country and the world who collaborate with one another to create open educational resources. And, and you can find those at different institutional websites or on MetaFinders where they have textbooks. So most of those are the ones that I'm familiar with. You know, the individuals are experts in the field they're putting together content because they want that to be available to students at no cost but there's a peer review process to it uh, the materials put together very professionally there's updates that happen to it so in that case i think that's a lot different than a situation where somebody may be publishing work with students or where students are publishing work and the instructor is serving kind of as a guide for students at that point in the book that we just discussed the students peer review each other's work there's lots of opportunity for the faculty member to play a mentorship role to the student and provide feedback. And then we have a quality 
control process that we go through as well when we're putting them into the book so that we know that what goes out is something that would be beneficial to the next group of students or individuals who look at that. And I do know that there are places where people do collaborative work with students. And I think the faculty member plays a lot of quality control in those cases to make sure that whatever goal they have in mind from a scholarship perspective is the students are able to contribute to that and they have the mentorship needed to make that successful. And there's also websites and organizations that have worked to kind of start doing, it's not a blind peer review process the same way that we would go through a scholarly journal, but doing some QA in order to make sure that the materials that they're promoting are of excellence. And so they do also have a QA process where to get listed officially on their website, they go through like a five-step quality assurance process. So like there are ways like that, that you can kind of help establish credibility. And what a wonderful gift you're giving your students or the participating students to begin to realize that they have the ability to create materials like this and to review materials like this. What a tremendous benefit as they move into their varied careers. Yeah. I would have to say that the students are incredibly good at meeting the goals you set for them. And so the quality of the research is really based on how much expectation that you put out there. And so a lot of our students produce some really incredible stuff. That's awesome. I'm so glad that the two of you have the opportunity to be really involved too in that first year course. I didn't want to get too far in the weeds earlier, but it's neat to hear that you were able to kind of put that book together and get it implemented all at once, or it sounds like with ultimate support, I suppose, in your institution. It's really neat. Now, as you're exploring the open education space, what have been some of, or just one even, of the identified problems that you've observed that have encouraged you to lean in and go ahead and publish on that particular problem or to explore a little further? Well, I think one thing that has really been of interest for us has been this kind of evolution as we look at various aspects of open education and drilling down deeper into what we ultimately kind of have worked with has been open pedagogy. So the work that we started with was a much broader conceptualization of open educational practices and trying to better understand how all of those various elements under open educational practices fit together, right? So like how does open institutions fit with open education, fit with open networks and all this other stuff. And so rather than kind of focusing on all of those, we recognize that there seemed to be some hesitation in getting people into open pedagogy specifically, right? It was kind of one of those things, if you knew about it, you knew about it. And if you didn't know about it, you didn't know how to get there. <laughs> and so we've been trying to kind of clarify that path, I think as a way to kind of start that conversation. Yeah, and ultimately we still wanna be able to explain things to instructors in a way that doesn't seem overwhelming. And it gives them a place where they can say, where, where do I want to go? What are the values that I hold as an instructor? What do I want to be a part of the class that I have? And how can I accomplish that through some of the practices of open pedagogy? And then we want to be able to take people and say, here's a simple step you can take. Here's a place you can begin. Here's a foot in the door to further your practice of open pedagogy. And if somebody has been doing it already to some degree, we want to be able to sit there and say, well, here's next steps you can take because it's not 
you're open or you're not is more of a spectrum from a more closed approach to education and teaching to a more open approach. And so there's always kind of a spectrum there where somebody is, and we want to be able to help them along that way no matter where they are. Yeah, and I think making it kind of more accessible has been really key for us. So in terms of thinking accessible, in this case, not talking about ADA accessibility, but like ease of access for someone to shift into using open practices or open pedagogy specifically. And so in our conversations with our faculty and other work that we've done, we talk about it, like Eric said, on a spectrum, but we also talk about it in terms of like, you never have to start your whole course over, right? Don't don't erase all the stuff that you've done up to now and be like, I guess I have to be an open pedagogue now and just start completely <laughs> fresh. So we want them to think about like what's an assignment that they can switch and, and do it more strategically. What's been the general response of faculty to this concept? Yeah. I would say that a lot of people are very open to it. You know, when we talk about the values that open pedagogy can give an instructor in their class, we find that most instructors want those things. In the class they just don't necessarily know how to accomplish those and when you think about that that's not surprising because somebody who's teaching at the university level is very familiar with their topic and they've seen the instructors that they've had in classes but they're not necessarily you know trained in pedagogy or trained in teaching the way you might if your career was to be a secondary or a primary teacher right so we find that people are very open to it and we find that a lot of times if we talk about what open pedagogy could be, the different parts and what that might look like, a lot of people are doing things that are somewhat similar. They're just maybe not doing the step that would make it fully open. And so a lot of times we can take something that they're already doing that they really like, and we can just go the next step and we can help them as professional development individuals to take that next step in their class. Other times, you know, people just don't know what it is and they've heard the term and they want to find out about it. But when we go in there and when, as we've been doing some training with people, we find that most people say that they can see a way that they can implement a part of that in a class they're teaching right now or in a class that's coming up in the next term. So that's very positive when we hear that because we know that if we can get people to take that next step, that they're more likely to go even further than that. Yeah, some of the things that they get alarmed by, a lot of it involves like technology integration. And so those are places where we can kind of step in and really help in terms of like training them on a specific platform, kind of trying to ease some of those anxieties. And also, Eric, I kept giggling to myself that you kept saying that they were open to something. Yes. <laughs> Again, all those, all those words that we have to parse out sometimes. What a wonderful process for faculty to learn in terms of Here's something that's not working in a course I'm teaching. I'm going to create a new resource. I'm going to collect some data on how effective it is, which then also could lead a path to some kind of publication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that Eric and I have really been working on with our faculty, and we're actually in the process of planning out Falls PD2. And one of the things that we're looking at is emphasizing teaching research, because there is a wealth of data and information that they're collecting it's just taking that next step and turning it into an article so that they can share their experiences out there. So it's also Absolutely. an area of our interest. There, you just said it. You're finding something that they're already doing and they just need to take that very next step. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. I love that perspective. So in your research, what are some specific instructor values or strategies that you found best align with open pedagogy? Uh, yeah, we did the research with this. We went back to a lot of articles and there's a ton of material out there on the field of open, but we read through 
a large number of articles. We went back and we said, well, what is the underlying value that people are saying comes from this? And we looked at it from the perspective of the instructor and saying, what do I as the instructor get from making my class more open? And the things that we found that we could distill this down to were transparency, sharing, personalized learning, learner empowerment, this idea of deconstructing traditional power structures within the educational space, and then collaborative knowledge creation. So we actually did work with some subject matter experts from around the world related to these and asked them if these are the values that are published out there as being benefits of using open pedagogy, which ones do you think fit into the content realm? Which ones fit into the design of the course realm? Which ones fit into the assessment of students? So we asked them about those so we could better align particular elements of pedagogy with values. And we found that, not surprisingly, different people saw different values and different aspects of the teaching practice. We actually created a framework based on that, and that is published? Yes. It was just recently published within the last, I think, two months. It's called The Wise of Open Pedagogy. Yep. Tiffany, what do you think about two people who have a conversation and they can't remember if something they wrote was published or not? I mean, come on. We do this all the time, Brad. <laughs> it's more like, was this episode of the podcast published or? <laughs> That's true. That's true. So are there disciplinary differences in terms of how attractive people might be to engaging in open pedagogy? I think that one thing that we're seeing with our faculty as we've worked with them, and we don't have any hard data on this, is like anecdotal, right? I just want to clarify that. Um, <laughs> but we're seeing that certain people recognize that this particular assignment can be transitioned. So for example, our humanities faculty, they're implementing law writing assignments or some sort of content creation assignment. And so getting them to move that to that next step of putting it out for publication, having students license it, that seems to be a little easier, but with our science faculty, something like assessment is something that they see as a potential for pulling in open resources and licensing material openly because they recognize there's much more of an analytical aspect to how they're approaching their content. And a lot of our faculty are looking at that and going, this might be an area. And so that's kind of one of the reasons we've approached it the way we have. I wouldn't say it's like a disciplinary based in sense of like, there's one place that's like, no, this won't work. I would say that it relates to the faculty seeing specific elements that they think can be then adopted. Open course design, adoption of OERs, our institution is entirely free to student resources anyways. And we've done that with adoption of OERs. And so for example, our chemistry faculty, we're already using the OpenStax chemistry book. And so like there was already the elements there to kind of help build progression forward. Very good. Yeah, I really do think it depends more on a person's philosophy. Mm -hmm. And that's why in the framework that we went over, you can see elements of involving students and the people who really are focused on the belief that they have to cover content with students. Sometimes that's difficult for them to see how they involve the students, because it seems very much like there's so much material I have to get through. The most effective way is for me to lecture. 
And so anything that's not lecturing is therefore taking away this ability for me to pass content onto students. Mm -hmm. So if that's somebody's philosophy, it's a little bit more difficult to get to that place of involving the students in the course design or involving the students in the assessments or the development of content. But it may not be the, your step into open pedagogy in that way may be in how you design the courses with your colleagues or colleagues at other institutions. So we can sort of work into the ability of stepping outside of the box of I'm going to teach from a particular book. I might be the only one in my institution that's an expert in my particular field. And so I work independently to prepare my students for whatever they come to me having done and where I know they have to go afterwards. But I can work with my colleagues on that. I can work with colleagues at other institutions and I can be practicing a more open design to my course even without necessarily going that next step of involving students yet. And I think we can get people there, but sometimes you have to take that first step before you can take additional steps. And I'm glad Eric brought up the test questions. I have to say the one thing that has been really great at getting some of our faculty to kind of make that step towards involving students has been having them write test questions, getting them to go, hey, and even with the faculty not ready to put it out, say, on a MetaFinder, but getting them to be able to write them and then they use those test questions the next semester, that even is one more step towards a more open process. So we want to emphasize the value of like the small incremental changes. I think my question kind of presupposed that there are certain disciplines that are more rigid than others. And the reality is within each discipline, there are faculty who are very flexible and want to try new things. And then at the same time, others who will never try something new. So thank you for that answer. Well, and I think that you bring up an excellent point. There is resistance to change that anyone who is in professional development has run up against. And so right. our faculty are the ones that are connecting the most with our students. And so we want to encourage even those who are most resistant to change to think of small places that they can be helping their students. And usually our faculty are passionate about making sure that the students are getting their best learning experience. And so if we can frame it in such a way that this is going to be a value additive approach, we can sometimes ease some of that hesitation. There's probably no greater thrill than working with that faculty member who historically has been totally resistant to change and to see that light bulb go on and start to realize that they can do something differently. What a gift that is. Truly. It's one of the reasons we started collecting student data mm -hmm. and student response to these approaches. So we yeah. could go back to our faculty and say, this is what our students are saying about this approach. And that goes a long ways in showing why it is that switching approaches may be beneficial to the students and to their own classes. Excellent, excellent. So in terms of faculty professional development, maybe it is open pedagogy, maybe it's more than that. What's been your focus most recently for the subject and the delivery method of faculty professional development? Well, I think that everyone in PD has had quite the last couple years in terms of trying to figure out delivery, right? We're switching to a hybrid approach as far as actually delivering content. Most of our sessions, if they are in person, we offer a Zoom version because we do have faculty that are still fully remote. 
we're actually in one of our studios right now, so we can do some live streaming, but we can also record if we can't get a Zoom to have simultaneous so that we have an online library of on-demand instructional offerings that we've done. And that's in what we call our PD hub through our learning management system. And so that is kind of the delivery. As far as emphasis, we align a lot of our PD to institutional initiatives. So for example, I work a lot with our professional schools and we have some pretty significant curricular changes happening over there. So we're focusing a lot on case-based learning and problem-based learning. So that's one area where we're doing some PD. Yeah, we've also found that we're a part of the Appalachian College Association, a group of 34 institutions. So what the Zoom has allowed us to do is rather than us just do PD for our faculty, we now make those available to anybody at any of those institutions who would like to attend. It helps bring up the numbers, our discussions are better, and it provides us a way to speak to other faculty at other institutions. And what we find a lot is our faculty at different institutions are speaking to one another. They realize they have a lot in common mm -hmm. and they actually find people that they can collaborate with and ideas that they can take from people at other institutions. So that's been really beneficial and, and something we didn't really even consider before the last couple of years when we started doing everything by Zoom. But as we came back, our faculty told us they want them both. And if we're going to do both, we might as well make that training available as a wide area as, as possible. We are doing some work still on open pedagogy. We have worked with subject matter experts again around the world on a series of questions that will help people who are working with faculty or faculty themselves can self-assess to kind of determine where might be the best place to start with open pedagogy. So we're going to do some more work with that. We're also developing some training on open pedagogy, mm -hmm. the model that we've developed, as well as these questions are going to be a portion of that. And when we have that finished, we are going to make that available open as well so that we can get people as much as possible yeah. in there and get their insight. Yep. Amazing. Brad, I think we need these resources. What do you think? I think so too. Yes. Anything we have, we're happy to share. <laughs> so we so appreciate you being with us today. And what great information you provided us on this whole area of investigation. So thanks for being with us on Digital to Learn. Thank you both. Yeah, we thanks for having Thank us. You all. Yeah, this was fun. <laughs> I'm claiming these two as friends. And so after the show ends today, I can't promise I'll be done emailing the two of you, but I'm getting a thumbs up just so everybody knows. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Digital to Learn podcast. We're going to be back next week with new guests. But in terms of today, please go onto our website, digitaltolearn.com, and check out the numerous resources that we have. Our guests have shared a couple new things that you may not have been able to access before. They've got that version two of their student stories book, and they also have the framework, the whys of open pedagogy that we hope to link to on our website as soon as they're ready. So check that out, share our podcast, like our podcast, tell your friends, and we'll see you next week on Digital to Learn. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.